When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. Today I have with me uh, my guest, Paul Gould. Dr. Paul Gould is an associate professor of philosophy of religion at Palm Beach Atlantic University, and he's the director of the MA in philosophy of religion program there. Dr. Gould is the author or editor of 10 scholarly and popular level books, including Cultural Apologetics, Philosophy, a Christian Introduction, and the story of the cosmos. He's been a visiting scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School's Henry Center, where he worked on the intersection of science and faith, and he is the founder and president of the Two Tasks Institute. Um, he's, he's just a, a, a speaker that everyone wants, and so we're super lucky to have him come on here. Uh, he's, he's married to his wife, Ethel, and has four children. Paul, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Parker. It's great to be here. And yes, I am married to my wife. That's, that's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's called a tautology for people for sure. uh, listening. Um, so I, I wanted to just do a little personal introduction. That's like the, uh, the, the public blurb that you can read on, on websites and stuff. I first met Paul at Trinity, uh, by the lagoon, uh, here last year. And I kind sure. of accosted him as he was sitting on a bench and he's, he's staring off into the void. And I just kind of like fanboyed him. I was like, Hey, are you, are you Paul Goldman? I, I've been meaning to talk with you. I got so much to say. And he was super gracious, and uh, that that budded into a uh, a mentor mentee relationship, where uh, he taught me all things metaphysics. So that was super fun. It was super fun um, doing philosophy and fig newtons with you. That's right. I I mean I loved. I do. That's about a year ago, right? That you yeah. probably walked up to me. Um, but yeah, you were you you were one of the highlights of my year at TED's uh, Parker. Just you know, um, I remember our car rides because so for our listeners. Um, I talked you into, I think you thought this was a like a benefit, but I talked you into driving me to the airport every week. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. really great. But you would, we would just talk philosophy the whole time. I enjoyed it so much. And so, I, like I said, you really highlighted my time. I was Thanks, man. that time with you. So. Yeah, that's huge. So so Paul's a guy, um, he can beat you in a, in a gift war. So this dude's really good at gifts because all his four kids. But he's I also discovered them a year ago. And now I'm like, a <laughs> yeah, he's in the shop. So man, it's, it's not... It's cool, but it's also like I hate when he gets me and he ends up uh, getting the better of me here and there. He can also critique your your papers at a really high level. I I had the uh, the fortune and misfortune of uh, having him look over one of my papers that I thought was super awesome at the intersection of philosophy and theology. And I asked him to give me really hard feedback. And he did. And he made sure like, hey, dude, I hope you're OK. You know, here it is. Yeah. And I I, um, I read it at a wedding right after the wedding, right before the uh, the dance part. 
and I would just kill my mood the whole time, but I ended up benefiting from it. So yeah, I appreciate I'm that. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's always better to do it, you know, earlier than later. So. That's right. That's right. It was super helpful. Um, so Paul's a, a metaphysician. And so we had on um, an epistemologist already. We're going to have some more epistemologists on who epistemology is a study of knowledge. Metaphysics is a study of being and reality. Uh, I guess ontology is being, but metaphysics is reality and subset. So this is going to be sweet because this is a field that I didn't know a ton about. And as theologians, uh, we talk a lot about without really knowing a whole ton, usually, unless you're you know, a good philosopher and theologian. So today we're going to be looking at uh, a chapter from an upcoming, is it four views or five views? Uh, it's four views. And yeah, it's forthcoming. It's sort of in process right now sweet. Four views on Christian metaphysics. Books. Yeah. And and so Dr. Gould or, or Paul, I always forget, I can call him Paul now. Paul, Paul. It's my name. <laughs> uh, he He's taking a Christian Platonic metaphysical approach uh, in his chapter. And so we're going to go over it, uh, hopefully it's in, in some depth here and, and teach some metaphysics, let you guys, let you guys in on uh, what I had the whole last year, the benefit of, of experiencing from him. So uh, Paul, as we jump in here, can you just um, give a quick definition of philosophy for us? Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, good. So philosophy, <clears throat> more broadly in general, um, I, I, I view it as the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge for the sake of the flour flourishing of all. So mm -hmm. that's that's kind of my general view. It's just we want to we want to find to discover truth and wisdom and we want to help individuals and society flourish. So that's my view of philosophy. Awesome. And that that's more like um, that's kind of like the, the ancient view. Right. Where it, it's today it's become so specialized, but you're taking a more like holistic kind of approach. Yeah. I mean, I love I love I actually love the specialization this year. But you're right. Uh, classically, philosophy, like, you know, even if you look at the etymology of the word philo, philene, to love, Sophia, wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom. And actually, Plato in the Republic was a little bit more scandalous there where mm. he described the philosopher as wisdom's lover. And, you know, this idea that we're moved by we're moved by this pursuit of truth. And so that is the classic view. Um, and then of course today, you know, it's, it's it, academic philosophy can seem very technical and arid and mm. rationalistic. And of course, you know, we do care about terms and definitions, but ultimately you've got to sort of enfold that back into like, why are we doing this? What is the, what is the point of it all? And I think the point of it is, at least as I think about it is, that, you know, there's this wonderful passage in Colossians 2, Two verse three, where um, Paul says of Christ, in Him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, mm -hmm. the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge for the flourishing of all is very, um, you know, to me, it's a sense, it's a calling, right, to just pursue Christ, uh, the font of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, yes. So, yeah, that's the maybe the tapping into the ancient view. A little I bit. love that. So. Um, a lot of books that I've read has kind of distinguished uh, three major fields in philosophy, epistemology, value theory, and metaphysics. Do you, do you like that characterization or is there, is there more or less? Um, no, that's fine in terms of the, I mean, there's lots of subfields, however right. you, whether they go underneath um, right. those three or not, but th that, I think that's great. The big three. Okay. Sometimes I throw logic as a fourth one. Cause that's okay. one thing, but yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, so then metaphysics is what we're going to be talking about today. Can you give us a, a definition of metaphysics? Very simply, I would just say metaphysics is the um, philosophical study of the nature and structure of reality. Mm. That, that's what we're after is what, it, what, what is this place? You know, what, what exists and what's real and how does it all fit together? Yeah. 
Awesome. And so then, uh, would you consider ontology a sub a sub uh, discipline of metaphysics? Yeah. Sorry, I'm closing my email, so I stopped getting emails. Um, yeah, I uh, I don't know. Sometimes people use metaphysics and ontology as right. synonyms. Yeah. Other times, people do um, make ontology a subcategory, and usually, when they do that, ontology is that sub discipline of metaphysics in which we catalog the furniture of the world, or we mm-hmm. you know, look at the categories of the world. And so ontology, as you even mentioned earlier, root word, ontos, or being. And yeah. so it's usually kind of, if we're doing ontology, perhaps what the person means when they say that is we're kind of cataloging the furniture of the world. I would just put it a little more broadly, because we don't just want to know the furniture of the world, we want to know how it fits together. Yeah. So I, just, uh, I tend to use those as mostly synonyms. Okay. Um, but that's yeah. sometimes a distinction that's made. Oh, it's definitely helpful. So now we're going to get into uh, Platonism because you're taking this Christian Platonic or Christian Platonism approach. Uh, so I want to talk about like the, in, in a good Platonist uh, understanding, I want to talk about the unity and diversity of, of Platonism. So, so what unifies all Platonisms? Yeah. Okay, good. So as you hinted, there are versions of Platonism and I'm only going to defend one specific version, but I think what unifies... All of them is probably a fundamental distinction, um, as Plato would have put it, uh, Hmm. between the intelligible world and the sensible world. I think in more contemporary terms, we might just say um, the fundamental thing that all Platonism share is a kind of dualistic view of the world, that there's a concrete world, you know, the world of the universe, the physical stuff, um, the material stuff. And then there's this, um, sometimes it's called this abstract world. And so there's at least a dualism of material and immaterial Sometimes it's a dualism of concrete and abstract, but but the idea that there's at least two fundamental kinds of things, material, immaterial, concrete, abstract, sensible, intelligible. I think that's the, the root uh, Platonic idea. Okay. Yeah, and I've, I've heard lots of different words for that too. Like you said, there's, there's abstract objects um, and there's ideas, right? So, so I think Plato probably would use the word idea, like these, these, uh, these forms. Mm-hmm. These abstract objects that are up there, their ideas. Uh, yep. I want to get into that in a little bit, but so that would be what kind of unifies all of them. And then, how about um, the diversity of the Platonisms? Um, can you go over like what's traditional Platonism as you characterize? Yeah, yeah. So in this essay that I'm writing in this book, um, you know, we've all written our well, we've mostly written our lead essays, and then everybody's going to critique each other's, and so we're kind of in the midst of that. And I'm looking forward actually to the the replies by the idealists. We can talk about what that is. Yeah. and then there's a I think kind of a Christian nominalist view maybe. Um, But uh, so I I distinguish at least three kinds of, uh, you know, a taxonomy of Platonisms. There's traditional Platonism, which would be, you know, the the Plato, as you've mentioned, of eternal forms, Uh, the traditional Platonist, you know, the soul is immortal and it reincarnates and and things like that. And also for traditional Platonism, uh, there's a real degradation of the material world. So Mm. for example, in Plato, you know, he held it. He held to a graded uh, view of reality, such that things in this world, the material, visible uh, realm, were less real than things in the intelligible realm. So, mathematical objects or the forms would have more reality or more being than, for example, um, physical things or our shadows had hardly any being. Um, and, and that's kind of traditional. Platonism, but it's that's not the Platonism I'm interested in. That's not the Christian Platonism that I defend, and, and especially um, the thing that is rightly critiqued and um, by by theologians often when they hear the word Platonism is this, is this denigration of the material world. Yeah, the Platonism uh, that I'm defending 
doesn't denigrate the material world at all. In fact, it affirms it richly as part of God's good creation. Um, and so that that's traditional Platonism. Yeah. Well, yeah. So real quick for, for the listeners who have read, um, you know, C.S. Lewis and The Great Divorce, yes. um, you, you might be thinking you know, it's kind of weird to think of like the ideal as the more real. But in, in that book, Lewis, Lewis uh, a lot of people say is a Christian Platonist and, and he yeah. he has heaven being more real. And so if you remember back, sorry, spoilers or whatever for if you haven't read it, but it's been out for a while. Uh, the, the people from, from hell take a bus up to heaven and they're walking on the grass and even hurts for them to walk on the grass because they're like uh, going out of existence. They have like less being and for, and the, the heavenly world, the heavenly realm, even the grass is so firm that it's, it's hard for them to walk on. And so I know it sounds kind of crazy to, to modern ears, but um, it's, it's not as crazy if you read at least C.S. Lewis. Right. Yeah. And that, that's actually a beautiful, you know, you're, you're referring to, was that the, um, what is that? The, the great divorce, right? Great Where divorce, you got yeah. That? yeah and, and that's a very Christian Platonic. Lewis is a Christian Platonist as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he did hold to that view that he illustrated wonderfully in that, that book um, of less real, more real. And of course, the Narnia, the heaven was the most real. Yeah. I would think that there is a kind of scale of being, but it's not a scale um, in terms of degrees of being. It's a scale of perfection. And so that's yeah. we talk about that later. But um, yeah. there is a kind of scale to the world. But I don't think it's I don't think it's Plato scale, the degree yeah. of beings thing. Yeah. So, so moving on to uh, contemporary Platonism, um, I, I was I was interested because, um, well, I guess it's not contemporary. Maybe this is a medieval debate of the the problem of the universals. And if you could you could talk about uh, realism and, and nominalism for us. Okay. Okay. So we have traditional Platonism, which I've already said I'm not interested in defending. Now we we shift to what I would call contemporary uh, Platonism, and, and this is the debate that's taking place in the academy and the literature right now over Platonism. And this is a debate over um, whether or not uh, abstract objects exist. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the contemporary debate over Platonism is confused with a medieval debate over Platonism. So for the medievals, so th- so names of people would be like Thomas Aquinas or Anselm um, and Boethius, uh, Occam, uh, uh, and, and folks like this. Um, for them, the debate was over what's called the problem of universals. And so the Platonist or the realist in the medieval age was the person who defended belief in universals. And a universal, if I could define that, is an object that is multiply shareable. So, for example, um, you could point to the property being human. And if that property, the property being human, is multiply exemplifiable, or there's multiple instances of it, well, then it's a universal. So, for example, there's at least two instances on the realist or Platonist view um, of being human right now, you and me. So, the same universal, the very same thing had by two different individuals. That would be the, the the debate over the problem of universals. And the Platonist, or really the realist, argued that there were universals, whereas the nominalist argued that, no, there's not there's not one and the same thing in two distinct individuals, but you just have your share of your individual instance of human. And it's similar to my instance of human, but they're not identical. Yeah. There's no universal. So that would be the nominalist. So in the Middle Ages, you had a debate over realism or Platonism and nominalism, and that was over the question whether or not there were objects that were multiply exemplifiable. Can can I jump in real quick? Yeah, so yeah. so um, you're talking about universals. Are universals the same as forms in Plato's ancient uh, conception and ideas? I, I think that that's fine to okay. think of them as, as Plato's forms. Yeah, so, so you have good and you have good things, 
Mm-hmm. And then, then you have goodness itself, right? Yeah. You have three ducks, Huey, Louie, and Dewey, yeah. and you have duckhood. Yeah. yeah. And so that would be the good, the, the distinction. I'm but so glad you used ducks. Individuals. Yeah. I think animals are so great. So like you think of like, there's a form or there's a universal of turtle. That's and right. it's multiply, uh, I, I always say realizable because the study of uh, philosophy of mind. What right. do you say? Multiply. Exemplified. Exemplified. Yeah. So that that there can be multiple instances. They can be right. instantiated different. So this form of turtle, all turtles have to like fit this form or they the form is, you know, realized in them. But you got That's snapping right. turtles, you got painted turtles, you got all different types of turtles that are going to be different and they're less real because they there's something off about their form. And that's, we don't have to get into all that, but. That's this universal, the universal of turtle. Or, That's right. And you actually just said it. You said there's all these different types mm-hmm. of turtles. So there's the distinction. Sometimes people point out, you know, the type token distinction. So yeah. you have, if you have like three words on a page, red, red, and blue, well, you have two types and three tokens of, yeah. of word words, right? You have two yeah. types, red and blue, but then you have in one instance, two tokens of the one word. And that's kind of the thing with the turtles, right? There's the type turtle or the form, or as the medievals came to call it, the universal. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these instances out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was the medieval debate, but that's, that's awesome. not a contemporary debate. So anyway, yeah. that's, yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's go there. Let's go to the, the contemporary debate. Uh, so very simply, the contemporary debate shifted in the 19th and 20th century, 19th and 20th century off of the question of universals to the question of whether or not abstract objects exist. So now the debate is between those who believe that abstract objects exist, and that would be the Platonist, I'm a Platonist in this sense, and those who deny that abstract objects exist, that would be the nominalist. So now the nominalist is is the the person who denies um, that abstract objects exist. So you might ask, well, what is an abstract object? Yeah. Again, simply um, the contrast is with concrete objects. Concrete Mm -hmm. objects would be things like this pen, that exists in space and time, right? It has a place, it has a a temporal location. Um, It's concrete in that sense. Abstract then, although it's difficult to define, usually are objects that exist just as real as this pen, but it exists usually outside of space, outside of time, and they're usually um, non-causal or, you know, they're they're not causal agents and they're, well, they're usually not agents either. Yeah. So, they exist, but they don't exist in space or time, basically. Yeah. And these and examples would be things like properties, the property being human, being green, being a turtle, um, propositions, possible worlds, numbers. Again, not the scratchings on a page or on a chalkboard, but the number two yeah. uh, and sets, things like that, relations yeah. and, and so on. I love that. So it, it seems like the modern debate has included more things than, the, than just these kind of universals that the medievals were debating about. Is that- yeah, and I think they're connected. I think the two debates are actually connected, and there's yeah. been some discussion in this, even in the book. I, I know that there will be some. I think that oftentimes, um, I think being a universal is sufficient for being abstract, Yes. Um, but not necessary. So you can have abstract objects, I think, that are not universals. So you could have the property of being Parker set a case. Yeah. That's a property that only you have. It's, mm-hmm. It has one instance. Um, and it will only have one instance, namely you, if that if that property exists, right? They're sometimes called singular properties. They're, they were called in the medie- medieval age hexades, but don't worry about that. Love that word. Um, yeah, word. Yeah. yeah. But so, um, but I think a ne- I think a sufficient condition for being abstract is being a universal. So I do think they're connected uh, yeah. in that way. And there, there's some reasons why I think that's sufficient to make something abstract. We can. Okay. I, I think if, if people are getting confused and thinking, well, this just sounds like a, a fancy thing to, to toss out and there's no way yeah. you can prove them. I think 
using the number two is really great because I could write out two or I could hold up two fingers or I could do whatever on a chalkboard. And then if I erase that number, did I just destroy two? Now, now there's no more two in the world. I can't have two books anymore. I can't. Well, of course not. It's ridiculous. Two-ness just is everywhere. It's like this, this abstract object, but it can be uh, instantiated in numerals. So you can write it in, in two. You can do Roman numeral two. You can hold up two fingers. You can, it can be instantiated, but destroying the instance of it or the token of it doesn't destroy the type or the abstract object of it. So it's not as bonkers as, as it may seem at first. Yeah. That's good. I think, mean, yeah. The, it, it, so, one reason to think that these things exist is, is uh, it seems to be that um, their existence transcends their instances. Mm. So, like you could have a red apple, and it could, you know, at one time, time t one, it's brown or green, let's say, and another time, it it loses greenness, but it takes on redness at time t two, and then at time t three, it loses redness, and let's just say it takes on brownness. So you have a change in that thing, that concrete object. Yeah. You know, gains a property, loses a property, gains a new one, loses it. But it's not like we would want to say that redness somehow is destroyed, right? Redness transcends its instance. Hmm. And one way to explain that phenomena or intuition is that, well, the property of being red uh, is something outside of space and time. And and in concrete things can uh, be instant, have, you know, have that for a time and then cease to have it for, for another time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. So just uh, I pulled a quote from you. Um, you say, while it is notoriously difficult to give a precise definition of abstract object, it is generally agreed to be immaterial, non-spatial, necessary, setting aside sets with contingent members, and eternal, again, setting aside sets, perhaps uh, fictional objects, non-agents. So these aren't things that are uh, creating. There's like the, the form or the abstract ob uh, object of like redness didn't, didn't make something red, right? Is that fair to say? Um, I'm not sure. Say that again. But it's it, not a causal agent. It's not like right. it doesn't do things. It's not, there's aren't like gods that, that are doing things out. It's just, that's an abstract object that it, it's there because it can be multiply uh, instantiated. Right. So, so you're right. They're not, they're not causal things. It's not doing anything. It's a non-agent, but if it's there, if it's part of the furniture of the universe, we've got to figure out how to make sense of that, especially right. as a Christian, right? That's what I'm interested in is a Christian, a version of Christian Platonism. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm persuaded for philosophical reasons that abstract objects exist, namely this thing called the problem of universals that we talked about earlier. I think yeah. that universals are sufficient for being abstract. And so I think abstract objects exist. So if I'm persuaded by that, and I'm also a traditional theist, okay, well, then we need to, uh, yeah. we need to figure out how these two wor worlds cohere. And that's the project that I'm engaged in in this essay that we're talking about. Yeah, that's perfect transition, man. You're good at this. So uh, uh, looking at your your position is contemporary Christian Platonism. Yeah. And uh, I was super excited to see these two theological principles that you affirm. So this is philosophy, and you're convinced for philosophical reasons that there are these universals. But you're a Christian as well, and so you're trying to make sense of this. And you've said to me uh, just in, in personal correspondence that you do find philosophy to be a, a handmaiden for theology. Right. And so you're trying to make sense of this stuff, uh, but philosophy is not the, the queen, theology is. And so you have these two principles, the uh, AD principle and the SU. AD is the Asadi sovereignty doctrine, and that is that, uh, one, God does not depend on anything distinct from himself for his existence, and two, everything distinct from God depends on God for its existing. And so this is a theological principle drawing on Asadi, that God is of himself, and he doesn't depend on anything. 
We see that in like the burning bush, the bush, the bush isn't uh, burned up. He's talking to Moses, showing that he has his own power, his own existence. He's from himself. And then SU, Sacramental Universe Doctrine. God is one, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Two, uh, and ontologically distinct from the universe, yet present and active in the universe. And three, the universe points beyond itself to the sacred order. So God is of himself, uh, and he's able to interact with the universe, and the universe points to him. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. I love that. So then you go into modified theistic uh, activism. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Okay. So um, yeah. So I had these the, these theological principles that I think are deliverances of Scripture. You just did a great job summarizing the Sadie sovereignty doctrine. You know, God is asse. Everything else is apoleo. Okay. So there's going to be a problem there if I believe in abstract objects. Is they're eternal, and most people, the other, some Platonists think they're independent. They're yeah. created. Um, but I don't think that. And then I added SU in this essay. This is sort of new material that I've been incorporating as I've been wrestling with these questions over the last, I mean, I did my dissertation on this a number of years ago, but I've continued to, to wrestle with these questions. And so um, SU, the idea that we live in a sacramental universe, um, you know, affirms all the kinds of things that we want to affirm, that God is a creator and sustainer of the universe, that God is transcendent yet imminent, and that God is fully present to us. And that last piece, that the universe, in some sense, point to, points back and illuminates the divine. That, that's what you know we call the semiotic function yeah. of this world. Um, this is something Lewis stressed all the time, you know, that this world is a tight, is, is, a, is um, a sign pointing to the yeah. truth, you know. Yeah, and actually, true. I see it all over Scripture. The more I've studied Scripture, I mean, you know, Jesus says, "Consider the lily of the field and the birds of the air." You know, and and likewise, do not worry. Or he says, you know, or Paul says, you know, um, you know, the resurrection of the body will be. You know, he says, "Consider the heavenly bodies to understand the resurrection of our bodies." You know, from one mm -hmm. is from glory to glory. So, so these things are types that point to deep spiritual truths. Um, so modified theistic activism then is is the is the you know I mentioned earlier that I'm a Platonist but I'm also a traditional theist and so you've got to figure out how to bring the two together yeah and the result is this view that I call modified theistic activism that myself and Richard Brian Davis have defended in in a, a, a book and and I've continued to develop it simply um, let's see simply the view is this that abstract objects exist. Mm -hmm. And they either exist as uncreated constituents of the divine being, or they exist in Plato's heaven, some extrin extrinsic from God realm, but they're created by God. So mm -hmm. in other words, the only abstracts that exist are those that exist in the divine being, and they can be um, constituents, but they're uncreated, or they're created by God, and they exist in some Platonic uh, heaven. Now, to do that, there's a number of different, you know, moves that I had to make. I had to, I had to um, unpack a concept of eternal creation, and that's a little odd. I'll admit, ha happily admit, it's a little odd. Um, yeah. The idea of God or anyone creating abstract objects, I think, strikes some philosophers as as difficult to swallow. The more I've thought about it, I don't see any reason to think that God couldn't create abstract objects. I think the question usually beneath that is abstract objects are typically considered to be necessary beings. Yeah. Really, the worry was how can one necessary being create another necessary being? But I see no problem in one necessary being standing in a kind of metaphysical uh, dependency relation or even a causal dependency relation to another metaphysical necessary being. And so, you know, I had to work on some uh, some things like that. But that's basically the view. One last thing I'll say, and then I'll stop. Yeah. I, um, I basically put distinct from God two kinds of abstract objects. 
namely properties mm-hmm. and relations, except for the properties and relations that God has. Yeah. Uh, everything else I throw into the divine being in some way. So um, po- propositions, which for some contemporary Platonists are just abstract, independently existing things. I throw those into the divine mind and I actually identify propositions with divine thoughts. Concepts I throw into the divine mind and identify with divine ideas. And then possible worlds are just conjunctions, long conjunctions of divine thoughts mm-hmm. um, and sets are just the collecting activity of God and numbers. I do something similar with that. And so everything finds a place that in so far that it's either grounded in God or grounded in God's causal activity. And that's the, um, that's what modif- that's basically what modified theistic activism is. It's, it's so great that you could just like put all that right in that little soundbite. Right? That, that, that was amazing because that's, that's like five years of your, PhD work. Yeah. <laughs> but so, okay. So a couple questions that, that need to be or uh, answered or, or preempted. So the reason that that's significant, uh, there's lots of re- different reasons, but one of the reasons that's significant to have abstract objects, either in God's mind or in this world that he created uh, this platonic world, and then instantiated in the actual physical universe that we live in. The reason for that is to avoid things like the Euthyphro dilemma, which we've talked about on this podcast where, you know, you, uh, Plato asks, uh, Euthyphro, or sorry, Socrates asked Plato. Socrates asked Euthyphro, "Is uh, piety, and for our for our purposes, goodness? Is goodness uh, something that that God conforms himself to, or is it something that he just makes up? Whatever he says, good is good. So he could say rape is good, and then it becomes good. Well, no, that seems like this problem. But what's interesting and what's important for your view is that's a false dilemma because um, it's not just one or the other, but it's abstract objects like goodness." either are in their their, uh, a a property of God, like God is goodness, or it's like a concept in his mind, or it's a prop, uh, something that he created in this, in this realm. And I think you'd probably want to say it corresponds to his nature, right? Goodness is God's nature. Yeah. So a couple of things that fall out of this that are, I mean, there's, you know, all the philosophy is controversial. I know you and I are, are, I have no doubt are on different sides on things. Mm. So, if God has properties, as you know, you I know you'll pick out um, God is not simple, right? Mm-hmm. On this view, so I'm I'm I give a unified theory of predication for divine predicates for human predicates. If I say um, God is good, if we say humans are, you know, Socrates is good, um, the the predicate in both of those simple sentences refers to a property, right? Yeah. So there's something that falls out, a cost, right? That God's yeah. not simple. Um, so I have, so that, that would be a worry, right? It's and all, not, all the theologians are freaking out right now. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, we <laughs> talk, I'm happy to talk about right, it. Actually. Right. I know um, and then there's that worry about divine bootstrapping. Um, yes. you know, wait a minute, uh, or the, you put it as the euthyphro worry. Um, you know, wait a minute, if God is the creator of all properties, well then, um, how could God create, you know, then God has to create his properties. Well, what about that? And, and I say, well, no, no, he's not the creator of all properties. God's God has a nature on my view. And that nature um, entails that he has certain properties that, that kind of flow from his nature. And those just come uncreated. They're just part of the divine substance. So what I needed to do, and I did this in my dissertation, and I continue to work on this, is you just have to do some metaphysical spade work on how substances have the properties that they have. Hmm. And what does it mean for a substance to be a certain nature and to have certain properties that flow from that nature? So, yeah, there's all these worries. I know you're going to bring them up, so I might as well just throw them out there. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, God is not simple on this view. Um, so and and the worry is, well, wait a minute, if he's not simple, how do you still get a saity? And I have ways that, you know, I think I can address those worries. But that's 
those are some things that fall out. Yeah. And so um, simplicity is a, is a doctrine that's come under fire lately, but uh, also had some major pushback uh, lately from uh, classical theologians. Um, so simplicity is the view, um, not that God is sim- simple minded, but that God's essence is simple. He's not composed of parts me- like metaphysically. He's, he's one. And, uh, and that sounds really weird to people too. What would motivate that? Well, think about uh, a lot of times people will put on their books. I have one around here somewhere, um, a prism and there's white light coming in and then there's a, a rainbow coming out. And so, you know, it's still white light. It's just through a different prism. So if God's simple, then, you know, the prism of the creative world demonstrates his various attributes, um, but he's still simple. So that's what a lot of classical theologians would say. And then uh, a lot of more contemporary uh, theologians and philosophers have, I think, probably motivated um, by planning on maybe. Uh, he, had a, he had a great book on this. Uh, say, you know, we have some real problems with God being simple then. Right. Um, so just that's that's for free. Just letting everyone into the, the contemporary debate here. Good. So anything to follow up on that, Paul? Um, I had something and then I lost it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. Um, I will say I think the motive for simplicity is important to highlight. And that's why I actually highlight it in here. I mean, if you read Aquinas, the Summa, you know, question part one, uh, question three, um, article seven, I believe, you know, he, he, the motive, the motivation for simplicity is to, to preserve aseity, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so Aquinas had this view and you can see it there in, in 1.3.7 where he, he basically has his principle, any composite, any, for any composite whatsoever, um, the whole is logically uh, posterior to its parts. Yeah. Let me say that another way. For any composite, the parts are prior to the whole. Okay. Yeah. So on my view, like I said, I said earlier that we have to do some spade work in um, what does it mean for a substance to have properties. On my view, I just deny that principle. So I care about a Sadie. Um, I, I, and I think that my view, ha- God is still a say in, the, in the, way, the way that you defined it earlier, um, because I reject that part priority principle. I think that for substances, the whole is prior to its parts. Yeah. And so I just need to give an account of substances, which, which is actually a very traditional account, neo-Aristotelian account of substances, substances such that the wholes are prior to their parts, their properties, um, and their powers. And I do that. And in that way, I think I can still have a satiety even though I don't have simplicity. And so I can have the motivation, I guess is my point. The same thing that, that drove Aquinas and a lot of the medieval scholars um, to this was to preserve divine aseity. And I, I, I want to say, no, we can, if we identify some different metaphysical dependency relations that I think are already there for already Trinitarians, anyhow, um, I think we can actually get aseity without simplicity. And so we're good. We're all yeah. good. So. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Thanks for, thanks for explaining that, man. That, because the the aseity is the the key that is, is yeah. so important to um, to hold on to, and I I think your your position is really interesting because of that because you want to do that and and also because you're a, you're calling yourself a Christian Platonist but not in the same way that like Keith Yandel Keith Yandel did or yeah. uh, uh, PVI uh, Peter Vanenwagen um, who would say that there is this this realm that coexists next to God. And God has to create, and, and these are these are you know faithful brothers in the Lord, but mm-hmm. I, I think they're wrong. I, I don't want to say that there's this ab- abstract world that God didn't create. Um, yeah, and so I, I all that to say, I, I love your your um, position here, and I want to yeah. keep keep moving on it. Uh, I want to bring up a uh, what I call what I'm calling the the fundy objection. 
the uh, the fundamentalist yeah. objection. They hear us talking all this philosophy. You're talking substances and instantiations. You know, what about what Tertullian said? You know, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? You're mixing in all this philosophy in our theology, Paul. What's going on here? Um, you've thought about that, Chris. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'd say a question isn't an argument, number one. Yeah. Um, number two, if you read Tertullian, he he knew all the philosophers of the classic time and then interacted with them. Number three, you just can't escape being a philosopher. Every theologian, if you want to do good theology, you need to be a philosopher. And every th- philosopher, if you want to do good theology, we I, we need to know theology. And so, there, like you said earlier, um, there's an intimate relationship. If in, in Christ are hidden all treasures of, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, to be good thinkers, we've got to learn to make these distinctions. And so I would just, you know, I see this. I, I you know, I used to teach at a seminary uh, where I would teach a lot of um, future pastors. And so I would be teaching philosophy in the context of people called into sort of pastoral ministry. And there'd be at first all this pushback, like, why do I care about philosophy? Or, you know, yeah. um, but by about halfway through that semester, because, you know, I spent a lot of time doing public theory relations with philosophy. <laughs> suddenly they begin to ask questions and suddenly you see that, oh, wait a minute, philosophy can really aid me. Because we're going to get beyond the, oh, it's just all mystery at the front end, which mm-hmm. often is just a, a, a scapegoat for I'm too lazy to think hard about these things. We're going to get to mystery, right? We always get to mystery at the at the back end. Yeah. But you know, we can actually go pretty far with the mind that God has given us. And in that, what I think, especially in these classes, what I notice is if you have this posture of like, wait a minute, this is faith-seeking understanding. This was Anselm's view. Mm-hmm. Um you know, this is an act of worship. And so we begin with scripture and the confines of the control of scripture, but there's all these things in scripture that are underdetermined. And so we push them as far as we can in with theological modesty and epistemic humility. And it leads us to an expanded view of God. And that leads us to worship. And that mm-hmm. that's, that's how it ought to be. Right. You know, yeah. as Augustine put it, you know, you love best what you know best. And so whatever Tertullian thought he meant by that, the question is not an argument, and he was definitely not, you know, um, he was doing philosophy in whatever case he made. So, so yeah. that was the case. That's anyway, so I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so I want to go into the weeds a little bit as if we yeah. haven't already. But um, just just this one's for me. I, I, I'm We've talked about this a lot, but I wanted to, to bring it up again. So we're talking about Plato's heaven, which in your view is created by God. Um this is abstract realm. Uh, so where do we put the laws of logic? We've talked about that a lot. Uh, Greg Welty, James Anderson have, have written this. Uh, I, I think it's pretty influential. I don't know how Welty said it's it's been cited a lot where they're arguing that the, yeah. uh, the laws of logic exist in the mind of God. I wanted to, to touch on that with you because we've talked about this before. What do, what do you make of the laws of logic? Yeah. I don't know if I'll have anything to add from what we probably talked about earlier, um, yeah. but um, you know, just that um, on my view, which I think is actually similar to Gre- to Welty and Anderson's, um, is that, you know, the laws of logic are, are God's thoughts about th- how thoughts ought to go. <laughs> you know, so they're propositions about how propositions relate. And if propositions are divine thoughts, well, then, then they are divine thoughts about the uh, how divine thoughts ought to operate. Um, yeah. And, and, and so they're necessary because I think they're rooted in God's nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're ground, they're grounded in God's nature. I don't think that God could have, um, I don't think that God could have made it such that the law of non-contradiction, such that a contradiction is true Yes, um, because God has a nature and God is a, and part of that nature is perfect rationality. 
and you can't do things against your own nature. So I, so I think the laws of logic are grounded in that sense yeah. um, in a perfectly rational God. Yeah. In the same way that we would want to say that an essentially good God cannot, like not that he will not, but he cannot do evil. Yeah. I would want to say in the same way, a perfectly rational God, an essentially rational God cannot make a contradiction true. And so in that sense, um, you know, the laws of logic are grounded in God. Yeah, that's great. And this is bringing up something that I meant to talk about. So the laws of logic, let's say just the not law of non-contradiction, that's what Welton Anderson talked about. That That's mm-hmm. this principle we've talked about in the podcast that uh, something can't both be and not be in the same way, in the same manner, same time. Um, can't be just back in the day it was like existence, can't be popping in and out of existence the same way. But you're saying that the law of non-contradiction exists in the mind of God, not in the created uh, Plato's heaven. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, something you touched on, uh, there's a, a technical word for uh, volunteerism. And volunteer- volunteerism is that like God could, he could make a, a, things are grounded in his will, not in his being. So he could make good, bad. He could make truth, falsity uh, based on his, his will. Uh, it's voluntary, so volunteerism. And so you're saying that uh, the law of non-contradiction is not uh, God. You don't hold to volunteerism. Is that is right. that fair? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this was a big move in the um, the medieval debate. You know, when when re- realism was rejected because Occam won, let's say, and nominalism became the big thing. Mm-hmm. Which you know, it was actually a problem in theology. I mean, that's you know. Um, yeah. Nominalism became a big deal because theologians, I think we made a mistake. And I, I guess I'm pointing to Occam. Yeah. Uh, it was this volunteerism, as you said. You know, he, he didn't like the idea that God could be limited in any way. And so God has to have unlimited or absolute power. But natures, if essences exist, well, then God is limited in virtue of his nature. Um, I don't see that as a problem because it's still God's nature, right? You know, yeah. he's still the sole ultimate reality. Um, and so God is limited in the sense that there's certain things he can't do. He can't do anything as the traditional view of omnipotence even says that go against his nature. Right. Um, and one of those things traditionally is to create, you know, the logically impossible. And yeah. of course, the contradiction would be a logical impossibility. So, yeah, I, I would reject. And I guess what I'm saying is, is a rejection of um, volunteerism. Yeah. I don't think God could have made it such that, um, you know, contradiction were true because God is essentially perfectly rational. Yeah. If he was merely, merely perfectly rational, well then, Remember, because that word essence essentially does some work. Yeah. Right? If God was just merely or factually perfectly rational, well, then maybe it, could, it would be possible. I think at least logically possible that that um, God could, prior to like creating the law of nature, made a contradiction to or something like that. But if God is essentially perfectly rational, well, then I don't think even God could do that because He's, you know. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Right. And and it's not a problem uh, because He. God's not being held to some external standard. Right. There's not this law of contradiction above God that's saying, God, you can't do this. You know, no. we should worship that thing. No, but um, so I, I wanted to introduce my audience to truth bearers and truth makers real quick. And I, this is contentious. So philosophers listening, yeah, we get it. But um, so like the law of non-contradiction is a, is a, a proposition about other propositions. It's a truth bearer, right? It bears truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then you would put, you would say that exists in the mind of God but it corresponds to the, it has to have a truth maker. I, I'm not sure if you'd say this or not. We've talked about it, but oh, yeah, no, say, it, nature it, is the truth maker, right? Yeah. So the truth bearer, um, the law of non-contradiction bears the value, nece- true, necessarily yes. so, right? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the, it has the property attached to it of um, 
being true and it necessarily so. So then the question is, what is the truth maker? And again, it's, it goes back to the truth maker is God's perfectly, uh, essentially perfectly rational nature. That's the truth maker in this case. Mm-hmm. But, and this is again, one of my worries with simplicity. Um, you know, if God is simple and has no composition, no parts, even divine ideas, well then, or, or, or divine thoughts, well then what is the truth bearer if there are no parts, you know, in this sense, uh, constituents like ideas or thoughts. Um, But on my view, no, God has thoughts. Those thoughts are actually just propositions, just our divine thoughts. Um, So there's your truth bearer. And then the truth maker, of course, is God's perfect essential nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you get both, even for even for divine um, or for logical truths. That's how you ground them. So God is the truth maker, in this case, God's nature. Um, But, you know, you can locate other truth makers within the divine being for different divine predicates. Yeah. We're talking about logic right now. And that's how I would do that. Yeah. I love that. I think that that is something new. Uh, I think, I don't think Walty and Anderson have, have, uh, have brought up the truth maker because they, they talk about the proposition. Yeah. And that was something that came up with me because I was, I was studying facts and then you shredded my paper, which is uh, much yeah, appreciated. But we talked about facts a lot. And, and so in my understanding of, of like metaphysics here, so uh, a proposition is true if it so I'm a, I hold the correspondence theory of truth that it's true insofar as it corresponds to reality the facts of reality and so the fact like the dog is on the mat he's sitting over on his his the welcome mat and uh, that's a proposition and it can be true or false but it's true or false whether there's a fact that makes it true or false does that represent truth maker theory well yeah 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 yep there's a relation of correspondence between a, a thought or an idea or a belief and a, and the way the world is. Yeah. That's and the then fact. this is what's so cool, man. This is what's so cool. So God's nature is self-consistent and that's the fact that makes the proposition, the law of non-contradiction true, necessarily right. true because God is not. Right. Just- and you get the truth bearer. So you get yeah. both. You get both. Mm, yeah. Love and that. Again, yeah. So yeah, that's right. Gets me that's fire why we're together. And that's again, one of the worries I push, Against simplicity is if, if if God has no composition, where's the truth bearer yeah. um, for divine predicates? Like, yeah. who, who's going to bear that truth? And, and it, it, as it turns out, it has to be human beliefs, and that's too frail of a read to ground necessary truths or mathematical truths, and actually a whole host of other things. So this is some of the worries that I have. Yeah, uh, not to get on that horse, uh, but no, that's, that's good. That's man. No, I'm, I need, you know, I, this is something yeah. that you. I got the, the theologians, you know, pushing simplicity and saying yeah. that the Trinity depends on simplicity even because a lot of people today think the Trinity goes against the simplicity, but the ancients and the medievals thought simplicity actually bolsters the Trinity. So I got those guys saying that mm-hmm. I got modern philosophers saying things like you just said, which are so helpful. So people listening, if you have a, a an answer to this, come on, let's talk about it, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm still much. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm genuinely like, you yeah. know, I'm reading the literature on both sides. I want to know, like, yeah. I'm not personally um, because I think I, I see the motivation for simplicity and I'm able to accommodate it with my group, my the view right. that I have now, I think. Um, so I'm not personally moved towards simplicity, but I want to see it work. I want you know, I mean, like I, w- I want to know, is it a coherent view? I mean, I have worries. Right. Um, yeah. And we can talk about that. But yes, yeah, so I'm, yeah. I'm interested in even the views that I might not hold. I want to know how would we handle that? Yeah. How would that view hold, hold, handle these worries. Yeah. OK, so another one just just for me. Um, I'm, I'm studying concepts right now because I'm, I'm writing this paper on it, but um, I, I have fuzzy understanding. What, in your in your view, what's the difference between a concept and a proposition? Um, okay, so concepts mediate between the mind and the world. Okay. Propositions represent the world. Um, so, so I observe a ball, and I simply see the ball, 
and then I see the ball as a kickball or as yeah as a ball, right? So there, so I so I can see I can see so that concept is mediating my way of seeing in this case seeing it as a ball. Yeah. That's what a, that's what concepts do, right? So we can still think and perceive without concepts. I think of a baby, an infant. An infant can per- simply see the ball, but not see it as. Mm. But of course, when they um, gain a concept because their parents say "ball, ball," you know, and they eventually begin to associate the concept with the object. Yeah. Well, then they're going to their their experience of the world becomes much richer, and that's what concepts do. Um, but propositions are different. Some would say that that. Um, that concepts are constituents of propositions, um, but propositions re- represent the world in just the way that you were talking about it. So if I say the grass is green, the, there's an, an there's an ofness, right? And uh, um, you know, it's that proposition is representing the way the world is yeah. in a way that concepts don't. Concepts mediate and help me understand the world, but propositions um, are about things and and they represent the world and they can be true or false. Um, yeah, actually, do can concepts. I don't know if concepts can take on true falsehood, but propositions can. So maybe that's a difference. I'd want to think a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's that's interesting because you can have like a, you can have like a faulty concept of something, right? That, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're definitely different. Um, there, there's a you know like I, I say that divine. I'm sorry, concepts are divine ideas, and then of course uh, propositions are um, divine thoughts. But yeah. in some ways, you know, they're built up. Uh, concepts build up to propositions, but not totally. Like if I say quine is wise, I mean, I guess there's the concept of quine and the concept of being wise that are conjoined. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could go that way, but I, I would probably want to say that a little differently. Yeah. But, but some people might think that you just conjoin concepts and you get propositions. I'm not sure. That's interesting. Cause then it would be like this hierarchy of you're conjoining concepts to get propositions. You're conjoining propositions to get sets. Then is yeah. that, so maybe, like I mean, or at least possible worlds. Yeah. Possible maybe. worlds, not sets. Sorry. Possible worlds is what I meant. Yeah. Cause you, those are in your view. Right. And so, so there would be an interesting thing if, if that did work. And again, I would want to think a little bit more about it, but, but, the, but that would be one way to like get the most bang for, for your buck, right? If there's only concepts and then that's the fundamental thing yeah. that God creates, let's say, or that, that exists in the world. Well, you can get all these other things by building by the building relationship concepts plus the building relationship, let's say it would get you propositions and then it'll get you possible worlds. So you do want to do, um, I, I think we're headed here, but I, I actually think there's three fundamental different things that God created when he created. And, and I think from these three fundamental things, you can build the entire world and I'll just throw these out here and then we can go. Yeah, let's, do it. let's go right to it. Let's go okay, right so to it. Three funda- so we're making a distinction between fundamental and derivative. This is part of the Christian Platonism that I'm defending in this essay. Um, you know, that we first need to identify the fundamental things, right? There could be yeah. um, tables and chairs exist, but they're not fundamental, right? They're built out of parts of, of other things, you know? So the parts are the fundamental part things. So what are the fundamentals that God created when he created? I, I would say there's three fundamental substances, so those are things like you and I and organisms. Uh, there's properties, uh-huh. so, you know, all these properties we've been talking about. And I include relations as um, properties as well. They're, they're a kind of property. And then um, the third fundamental is meanings. And I actually, I think there's two kinds of meanings, prop- propositions and concepts. But those yeah. are the three fundamental things. So I, on my view right now, concepts and propositions are distinct. They're not just, you're not building, um, you know, one out of the other. Yeah. Um, but they're the, they're the fundamental things that God creates. And so I give a story. God creates propositions and, and concepts and dreaming 
up the possible ways things can be. He creates substances when he actually creates the physical, the concrete material, concrete world. And he creates properties, of course. Uh, well, I give a story for that as well, but he creates those that exist distinct from him uh, in the second logical moment of creation. So anyway, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to talk about those, those logical moments of creation. There's like this biggest bang and, um, I forgot you got that from not Brian Davies. I forgot who Brian you got left that from. Out. Mm-hmm. Left out, left out. Yeah, biggest bang, bigger bang, and then like the big bang. And so uh, the biggest bang is uh, when did he create modalities? Is that right to say? Okay, yeah. Um, so this is a paper, earlier paper that I wrote. Um, I think you can find this on my website, uh, paul-gold.com, but it's something like the- theistic activism and the doctrine of creation or something like that, where I, I take this idea from Brian Leftow yeah. in his book, God and Necessity, which is a great tour de force on um, the, that question of how do you ground all ne- modal reality, what yeah. we call the possible and the impossible, how do you ground it all in, in deity? And, and Brian Leftow takes on that project. But in there, in chapter 10, he talks about these, these logical moments um, in God, and he calls it the biggest bang and, and then the big bang. And I, I actually expand it to three logical moments in God's creative activity. And that's what I do in that one essay I just mentioned. Yeah. So here, so I'll try to summarize that if that's okay, Parker. Yeah, please. Um, in the first logical moment, again, these are logical moments, not temporal. So this is consistent with either eternal God a timeless God or an, or a temporal God. Can you, real real quick. That's, I think that's huge. Real, just to start logical versus temporal. So it's not happening. Consequent. It's not happening one after the other. That's it's, right. not it's just a, a logically conceptually taking Concept, place. Conceptually distinct moments. Let's yeah. call it conceptually okay. distinct uh, moments in God. Okay. There, yeah. It could be either timeless or it could be temporal in right. an instant. Um, okay. But the first logical moment is what, Left out calls the biggest bang, and I employ that. And in the biggest bang, what God does is dreams up all modal reality. So this is where some modal reality is already set, because we already talked about that, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the necessary truths are already set in virtue of the essentially perfectly rational God. So the laws of logic, those weren't dreamed up. They're already there. But in the first moment of God's creative activity, he does dream up other part, kinds of modal reality. Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking of specifically are... Um, he dreams up singular concepts and individual essences. So, yeah. you know, he, he dreams up cats and he dreams up horses and he dreams up Parker and he dreams up Paul, right? These are singular. So like there would be an essence of Parker, uh, uh, one of those individual properties, you know, that's part of your essence, let's say. Yeah. So he dreams up all that modal reality, the other stuff, um, sometimes left out calls them the secular truths. Uh, all the, the non-secular truths are already grounded in deity in other ways. Okay. That's the first moment. So all of modal reality is set then. In the second logical moment, God, uh, I call it the bigger bang, God creates the abstract realm and populates that platonic heaven. So if there's a singular concept that God dreamed up in that first logical moment of Parker and of cats, in the second logical moment, God creates a distinct from God platonic property, being Parker set a case and being cat. Yeah. So, the first moment is free and deliberative. The second moment is is necessary because you have one necessary being creating another necessary being, and it's in virtue. Um, so it's a necessary thing that that that's not free. But then in the third logical moment, again, free and deliberative, um, God selects a possible world and brings it into existence in the biggest bang where he creates the concreta, the concrete world, the concrete material world, and including souls and all that stuff. And so in that moment, in that logical moment 
you know, the platonic stuff uh, plays a structuring role and the substances are created and they have parts and they have properties and they have powers and they all yeah. sort of fit together. Um, so yeah, God's divine creative activity is logically complex. Yeah. Kind of that, that's so awesome. Okay. There's going to be a few people who get that, I think, but it's so, know, it's so great. I love it. Go look at um, the there's a good chart in this essay. Go look at the essay on my yeah. And Where's that at again? I think it's just at pauldashgool.com. You can find it under articles. And what's it called again? Do you remember? I think it's Theistic Activism and the Doctrine of Creation. Okay. Yeah, that, that'll be helpful. Go read that. Um, so just real quick, the, the the biggest bang was a free action, him dreaming up. And the bigger yep. bang wasn't free, but that's because he already dreamed up the biggest bang. That's right. right? So it's, it's not a problem. Right, yeah. yeah. So I don't think there's any real problem. I mean, divine freedom's already kind of interestingly different anyhow. Yeah. And human freedom. But um, yeah, I mean, so of necessity, one necessary being creates other necessi- necessary it, beings, but he's already dreamed them up freely. Right. right. So, mm-hmm. so even if it is, even if like the biggest bang is like a divine emanation, it's not like uh, the emanation of like Plotinus where it just happens out of him because he dreamed it up freely. And it's not in the, there's no emanating outside the divine being. He's just dreaming up in his divine mind. Right. And, yeah. And that's and then kind of, so, so thinking, this is something that's interesting. Planiga, uh, you know, pointed this out in a lot of his work, that thinking is a, a productive, right? When we think, we're producing thoughts. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of, and, and of course, production is causal. This is causal language. So there's a kind of causing going on when God dreams up cats or dreams up Parker set a case, right? Uh, and, and actually, I wrote that essay, truth to be told, um, the one that we mentioned here on theistic activism and the doctrine of creation. I wrote that essay to make sense of the ontology behind claims in scripture, like in Psalm 139, where, where David says, you know, before you were born from afar, I had you in mind. Yeah. Or Jeremiah 1.5, where he says, you know, um, I forget what it says, but basically I, before you were born, you know, you were in my mind. Yeah. And how do we, what's the ontology that's required to be able to say something before you actually exist. And that paper was my way of trying to flesh out that biblical truth that God had me in mind, even though I didn't exist, right? Yeah. Well, my, my, a proxy, a singular concept of me did exist. And, and you know, I think that's one way to make sense of that, those kinds of biblical claims. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I love that. It's so helpful. Everyone go check out that, that essay right now. Um, finally, I wanted to get to this. Um, just, just another quick actual aside for people, another free one. So abstracta or is it abstractia? Abstracta or abstract objects. Mm -hmm. Okay. Abstracta. That's a great word for you guys. If you can pick that one up and then concreta is the concrete. So those are great words. I love tossing out little gems like that for people to, uh, to be initiated here. But so, um, I wanted to talk about being because Uh, this one triggers me, man. Uh, (laughs) So, okay, so you got this, the AD principle, aseity, sovereignty, doctrine, AD, mm-hmm. uh, uh, doctrine. Yeah, so, or it's a principle of doctrine or whatever. So yeah. God is of himself. He's ase. Um, he is, ne- do, do you think God's a necessary being? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. God's a necessary being. He exists necessarily. Um, I ask because some people, you know, don't think that yeah. uh, for the listeners. So God's a necessary being. He exists necessarily. I am a contingent being. I could have uh, been different. I could have not had a mustache right now, or I could have not be- existed. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think that like being is analogical because I exist and I'm not I say, uh, but God is I say. So right. to me, it would seem like the creator creature distinction, which you want to affirm in your aseity 
sovereignty doctrine would say that there's two levels of reality. There's a necessary level and there's a created or contingent level. But then you go on to say, and I was reading this, I was so excited. And I saw, you know, we were texting back and forth, but you said uh, being is univocal. Uh, and I've, I've talked about this in, in an earlier podcast about univocity and that means like univocal, like it's, it's the same beings, the same for me as it is for God. So why do you still hold on to that, Paul? <laughs> I do not get the worry. I'll just be honest with you. Yeah. Um, coming from the being is an analogy. And I don't even know if that's, I don't, I, I do know what it means, but I don't know what it means. Um, I mean, cause you've already said it. You have been mm-hmm. and God has been, but we exist in different ways. Yeah. Right? I can say the exact same thing as you, but I can also say um, X exists means the same thing for God and for me. And, and, and I, I think, uh, yeah, I know you've seen the essay, but I'm pointing to there's a ton of literature that's really interesting um, called uh, that, that's called ontological pluralism. And it's just making the distinction that existence is univocal, but that, that things can exist in different ways. And that that's actually the same um, uh, insight that I think the neo-Aristotelian philosophers are getting at as well, where, you know, I made this distinction earlier between fundamental fundamental kinds of things and derivative kinds of things, they all exist. And for me, I, I follow J.P. Moreland and who, who follows um, Kant and, and actually a whole host of folks who, who argue that existence is just the having of a property. So anything that exists has a property. That's why I say being is univocal. But, yeah. but we exist in different ways, right? So the thing that I think the analogical folks want to say is that God is ah say and you're not. And I want to say, of course, God is ah say and I'm not. Yeah. We both exist. We just exist in different ways. And that's the claim of the ontological pluralist. I would say lastly, though, that I think as the neo-Aristotelian, when we have fundamental and derivative, we already have being in different ways. Um, and so we can just find which, um, you know, the existential quantifier in logic is the way that we can yeah. capture these existential claims. Um, I want to say that for anything that exists, it's captured by the existential quantifier, full stop, right? Tables and chairs and substances exist, full stop, but they exist in different ways. So the existential quantifier, according to the ontological pluralist, is not the fundamental quantifier. The fundamental quantifiers are, um, you know, these that where you have different restricted domains are the fundamental, you know, things and the derivative kinds of things, or to make it more theological, um, the the uh, the creator, and then everything else, right? Those yeah. are the fundamental existential quantifiers, and then and then um, or the restricted quantifiers. But the the existential quantifier is just the same for anything that exists. So I think there is a way to maintain an analogy of being, and Jeff Brower does this really well, who's an Aquinas scholar who follows this ontological pluralist way in his book on Aquinas and the material world. Um, I think there's a way that we can say, at least for me, that un- being is univocal, that univocal, that we're using the same sense. God exists, I exist. But following the ontological pluralist, we exist in different ways. Mm. I don't see any worry and I don't see any conflating of creator creature there. I don't see yeah. any, you know, making us on par with God. I don't see any of that worry that moves me. I'm open to it. Yeah. But I just haven't been convinced that there's any yeah. real threat there. Okay. So we talked a lot of, just real quick, uh, Paul talked a lot about existential qual. Uh, Quantifiers, quantifiers, not qualifiers. Uh, And that's just this backwards E thing. And that says like for every X, there exists at least one X. And so it's important in in logic and it's important in argumentation to be able to use that to pick out different things and say that that this thing exists. And so I think that, 
so when I think analogical, I don't think like Aquinas. I'm not thinking like a, a hierarchy of, of, of this chain of being. I'm thinking more like what, what actually what you're trying to pick out, that there is a difference, that there's created and uncreated. And so that's what's interesting. And, and so maybe from, from philosophers, because you guys are focused so much on the existential quant, uh, quantifier, quantifier, because you guys want to do that and theologians aren't focusing on that, it seems like maybe it's going at cross purposes. You following Moreland, who follows Kant. So Kant critiqued the ontological argument saying that existence is not a uh, predicate. A, a predicate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying that you, you would say that existence is not a predicate as well? It's the having of a predicate. It's the having of a predicate. Right. So anything that exists has, has a-, a predicate. But is the predicate existence or it's something else? N- uh, no. Okay. Uh, so if you, ha- so yeah. if you exist, you circular, have right? properties. Yeah, that's kind of the view. Yeah. Kind of the view. Yeah. Okay. So like you, you could like, and you could throw that one out. Like maybe that's not the, the right definition of being or to exist, right? Yeah. Like it in some ways, it doesn't really matter what the technical definition of what it means to exist is, at least for this debate right here. My point is that whatever that definition is, whether it's the having of a property or something else, I, I am not moved at all by this um, being is not univocal because we somehow blend the creator creature thing. Yeah. I, I've read the literature. I've struggled to understand what, where the worry is, and I just don't see it. You know, um, especially yeah. if we've already made the relevant distinctions between different ways of being. And again, there's a huge b- amount of literature on that already. Uh, of course, we exist in a different way. Yeah. Than- but that, but so what, you know, like, cool, of course, he's creator, we're creature. Um, what, like, what's at stake? And that's what I would want to push back. Plus, what do you get? And so here's oh, this is the last thing I'll say. Yeah. What do you get bef- besides confusion? Um, because even if we say being is analogical, well, there's still some core meaning. Otherwise, it's not analogical. So can we just go with, get with that core? Yeah. And say that, well, then we have that in different ways. I mean, that's. That's kind of what um, that's kind of why I'm not moved by the worry. Sorry, I hear that. No, that's so good, man. I hear it, and and a lot of my analytic friends will always will, will always hit that, and they go, well, "There's there's some kind of kernel in there." But yeah. I think the the problem that we want to say is like we we're not super sure what the kernel is always. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, and so in that sense, I just I think what you you did in making those uh, distinctions is really helpful and important because you're willing to say yes, we exist in different in different ways. One of us is created, one of us is uncreated. And I think that's that's really what's important. And so I think when theologians are getting bogged down in the um, the older conversation, the, the language debates of like the 50s and 60s or whatever, maybe even earlier, about univocal, equivocal, and I say univocal, I know it's univocal or whatever, but it sounds better univocal, equivocal and analogical. It's, it's an older debate maybe. And I think... Um, I like what you did there. I, it makes sense. It still triggers me to say being as univocal, but um, but okay. as long as you're saying, yeah, of course, of course, the uh, the, the principle still at, at play there. Creative future. No, no, I don't get the last word, right? Like I could be wrong, and I'm fine. Like let's yeah. let's all figure this out together. Yeah. But what I'm wanting to push back to my friends that are saying no, all being is analogical. Is, well, tell me what the worry is and how somehow I am transgressing that worry, and that's where I've not been moved. Um. And that, that's why I'm just not persuaded that why would we want to say that things are, it doesn't mean the same thing. We can still make the relevant distinction without that. So, so in other words, yeah, I'm not, what I'm saying is not yeah. the last word, but um, yeah. at this point I'm not, I'm not moved to see why I'm yeah blending, which is usually the, you know, 
you know, I just read a book, a great book actually by Paul Tyson, who's becoming a real, he's becoming a favorite of mine, he's kind of Christian Platonist, but he makes in my, in my estimation, these same mistakes where he kind of traces the, you know, the decline of the West. It begins with nominalism usually, yeah, always. the university of being, and then, you know, we end up with um, postmodernism or something. I'm actually with him on the first one, but I, I'm just not moved on the university piece. Um, you know, especially if we make these kinds of distinctions that I'm making. So yeah, and and there's some there's some uh, bullets to bite from the analytical or from the analogical side, saying like, well, God is love, but it's it's analogical to our love. You go, well, then what what does that mean? Is there a kernel that we can pick out? Yeah, okay, and and that's something I still need to to think through more. I think maybe just one of the motivating um, uh, contrib- contributions to people being upset by the univocal term is that it seems like God exists. And if being is univocal, everything he also creates to have being is up here on the same level as him in, in having being. But I think as long as you say, no, there's a line here and this exists necessarily and this exists contingently, you can still get exactly what we want when we say that I exist analogically to God. Right. So, yeah. so, there, so the, the cool thing with Brower's piece and his book on Aquinas is that he, there is a sense in which being is analogical. Um, but it's it's a sense in terms of these these uh, more fundamental restricted quantifiers. You know, maybe we, you know the existential quantifier is completely unrestricted. Anything that exists um, exists in the same way. But that's that's not as fundamental as these two restricted quantifiers. We could call it you know the creator quantifier and the creature quantifier. Those are actually the more fundamental ones, and those are restricted to two domains. So if those are so there isn't so if that's the case, then there is a sense in which we can speak of, um, you, know, you know, these distinct modes of being, you know, or yeah. analogy. It's a kind of analogical dis- way of talking, but it's it's one that's consistent with actually university of being, you know, and, and so, yeah. So there's some room to play, I think, where I, let's just uh, be friends. <laughs> yeah, man, this is so good. So folks at home, like, this is what I got for a whole year, and it's been so helpful to, uh, to, to hear Paul help me think through this kind of stuff and to know, like, there was times where you were quoting from uh, from Turretin and you're saying, you know, God is immense. And it's like, dude, I, I like Turretin. Like, what the heck? And so it's so encouraging to see that you want to take this seriously. You want to hear from theologians and you oh, yeah. want to do your philosophy under yeah. scripture's authority. And I, I think that's awesome, man. So great. Yeah. Yeah. Any need more, need more guys. Yeah. 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 So uh, as we wrap up here, I want to just plug some of your books. So um, – we talked about uh, you have the philosophy with uh, is that James Dew is he, yeah mm-hmm. so I, um, great book uh, for introduction to Christian philosophy or introduction to philosophy from a Christian perspective. Um, one this is one of my favorite actual books of all time. It's uh, Beyond the Control of God question mark. I learned from last time you had to add the question mark and that's six views on uh, the problem of God and abstract objects and that's what we're talking about today abstract objects. So in there you're going to get some some different. Um, a different Platonist view. Um, you'll get a, a two different Platonist views. You'll get uh, William Lane Craig's um, deflationary view. What, what is he? Is, he's a nominalist. Is that yeah, right? He calls himself an anti-Platonist, but anti-Platonist. yeah, nominalist works too. Is that? Is that? Could you call him anti-realist or not? Uh, yeah, um, okay. yeah. In this debate uh, about okay. abstract objects, yes. Okay, and uh, so that's a great book if you want to level up and if you want to see people hit each other on their position and, and cordially. Right. But, but it's yeah. fun because you see everyone sounds right until someone else comes and, and right. says that I think you're wrong. And then uh, another, another one right now 
that I've been loving is uh, cultural apologetics. And I thought it was so cool to get into the philosophy that um, your deep, you know, philosophical thinking, and then talk about your apologetics, just, just at least promote your apologetics book, because I think it's so important for apologists to be good theologians and good philosophers as well. There's a lot that undergirds your apologetics. There's a lot of thinking that has to go in. And so I wanted to show the world, like, you you do that, man. That's that's awesome. You're a great example for a lot of us young guys who want to get into philosophy, theology, apologetics. So that, again, is cultural apologetics. And it is uh, renewing the Christian voice, conscience, and imagination in a disenchanted world. And if you heard some Lewis in there, that is by design because there's Lewis on every page of this book. C.S. Lewis, it is. Well, awesome, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by here. I hope to have you on again. Are you are you cool coming on? That'd be awesome, Parker. Awesome. Anytime. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay, so you can find out more about Dr. Gould, uh, about Paul and his work at uh, paulgould.com or uh, the twotaskinstitute.org. And, and you guys have a podcast there as well. Yes, we do. Awesome. The Udo podcast, you can check that out. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, Paul, whether, uh, whether being is analogical or, or univocal. Thanks for being on my podcast today. Nice. I uh, like that. Yeah. Hey, great to be with you, Parker. Always a joy. I look forward to next time. And I look forward to you moving down to West Palm Beach to join us <laughs> in our program uh, soon. Yeah. Yeah. We'll totally see. Well, okay. So we could talk about this some more and, and hopefully we will soon. For now, it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always, all glory to God.